Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 204 Virtual Vajrayana. We're joined this week by senior Shambhala teacher David Nickturn to discuss the potentially radical consequences of advancing technology on the Vajrayana tradition. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today over Skype. We're actually trying Skype video for the first time. We've tried it a couple times before, but sometimes it degrades. Today, we'll see how it works. But we're joined today from New York with David Nickturn. David, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with the Buddhist Geeks. It's wonderful to be talking to Buddhist Geeks. I could do it all day. And I can tell from your glasses that you are yourself a Buddhist Geek. I'm a Buddhist geek and then some. <laughs> and then some, exactly. Um, and just a little bit of background information for those people that aren't familiar with your work. You're a senior Shambhala teacher, and you're also a musician. And, you know, one of your interests, I know, because you've been involved with Chugyam Trungpa's teachings, and he was your first teacher, I guess, and you've been involved with the Shambhala teachings for a long time now. And I know one of your interests is, what's the relevance of Buddhism today? What's the relevance of these teachings in our time, our place? And I want to just start off with a question for you about Buddhism taking root in the West. And it seems pretty clear that it's taking root in a situation that's very complex. One of the people we interviewed, a guy named Roger Walsh, he pointed out that this is the first time that Buddhism has crossed epics, not just cultures, but it's, it's gone from an agricultural epic to post-industrial. And I, I found that really fascinating. And I wondered if you could just say a little bit, as a longtime teacher and a student of American Buddha Dharma, how you're making sense of Buddhism as it takes root here in the West. Right. And the larger topic of that would be, what is the relevance of anything? Of course, what in the West, we've got to ask that question too, right? Then this is, would be a subset of that, as far as I'm concerned. Cool. But just to keep it personal for a minute... We just at Karma Chuling, which is our residential center up in Vermont for the Shambhala community, had our 40th anniversary. And I was there for the first one. So it marked for me personally 40 years of active involvement with that. And it also was a look back, very natural time to look back. Of course, I was three years old at the time, just in case you wanted to know. <laughs> no, but in, in seriously, I was uh, in my early 20s. And looking back... Over this last 40 years, I sort of, I think, developed some kind of perspective about what has happened because that really was very close to the beginning of the onset of Buddhist teachings becoming somewhat bit much better known in, in the West. There were a number of teachers who came over then that were absolutely instrumental in terms of planting the seed, you know, Johnny Buddha seed, you could call it, at that time. Suzuki Roshi from the Zen school and, of course, some Theravadan teachers, and uh, Trungpa Rinpoche was a major teacher, but there were also others. So, it's a very interesting view to look back before you look forward. Definitely. Having looked back and forward now, what kinds of things are you seeing? Well, either way you look, what I see is the importance of personal inspiration. 
And if you look at Trungpa Rinpoche, for example, as you can look at him in a wide variety of ways, but one way you could look is he was tremendously personally inspired, even in the face of adversity, challenge, uncertainty, those kind of things. That is the main thing that magnetized students to him, the level of inspiration. And inspiration leads to a certain kind of um, magnetic field of attraction. And when people have that, it's because they're really living very fully, right, in their own time. That's what I think the issue is. And, of course, that's what Buddhism says. You know, people can say that without doing it, as we all know. And have you found there's certain things now that you touch into that are really inspiring for you that maybe were different, say, <clears throat> even 40 years ago? Uh, yes. For one thing, I don't know exactly how old you are, for example, but, you know, my son Ethan is very prominent in this whole dialogue that's going on, Ethan Nickturn. Yes, definitely. So he's 32, and I'm very exposed to that crowd of people, and they very much remind me of kind of our crowd of people in a lot of ways, like I think including you right off the bat. And so that is a feeling of very positive configuration of what people are interested in, how they're conducting themselves, what they're willing to give up to learn new things. So that's very inspiring to me is, frankly, I like teaching. And I teach, as you know, in the yoga studio and the yoga world quite a lot. And there's a lot of people of that ilk there, too. And I feel very comfortable at home with that crowd. So I think just the energy and enthusiasm of people coming to it. And if I could sum it up in a couple of words, it's their desire to be genuine. That's the most powerful force. Interesting. As, as, as Ethan would say, keeping it real. Interesting. So genuineness or authenticity or something about keeping it real. Can you expound on that a little bit? Because that's really fascinating. Yeah, and of course, any of these things, you can find corollaries in the Buddhist teachings. Like in the Shambhala teachings, there's a term authentic presence. Authentic presence. That great teachers have a lot of that and great people have a lot of that. It's a, a sense of almost worn-in genuineness where it becomes you know, like good leather when you've kind of worn it in significantly and you feel that coming from the person, you're not going to shake them so easily from what they're coming across with. It's not a superficial presentation. They even say in the Buddhist teachings, wangtan, it's a field, an empowerment field of authentic presence. So there's a feeling that somebody who has that, like who's practiced quite a lot or has lived quite deeply, that they have that and that is very magnetizing to other people. It's like a deeper version of charisma. So it's not just the normal charisma of this person seems like they're glowing, but it's something far deeper, sounds like. Yeah, authentic presence. I mean, it's a quality of presence that comes from authenticity. And frankly, as people come and that's what they would like to explore and look into, then there's tremendous ground for communicating and working with people. That's interesting, and, and it sounds like that way in is maybe a different door than, for instance, the traditional one of exploring suffering. I mean, obviously those are connected, yeah. but I wonder if you yes. could say a little bit, because they sound like different doorways into Buddhism or into the practice. It would totally include suffering, because in terms of living authentically or keeping it real, there is obviously, if somebody is not relating to the quality of suffering and kind of... Um, any confusion they might have or any pain they might have, that right away limits. It's like putting a limiter on, on what can be expressed, what can be talked about. You know as well as I, it's what 
uh, Trungpa Rinpoche used to call spiritual materialism. Hmm. You know, you don't want to deal with that stuff. You hmm. want it to be nice and pretty and you know, looking good. Hmm. It's like the fake version of keeping it real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Keeping it unreal. <laughs> cool. And, you know, one thing that you brought up as we started this interview before we launched in is that um, you've been thinking a lot about and talking a lot about technology, virtual reality. I saw you wrote a post on the Huffington Post about virtual reality in Tibetan Buddhism. And I want to explore that with you a little because that's a really geeky topic and one that I think will be close to the minds and hearts of geeks everywhere. Yeah. Well, again, from a purely Buddhist traditional way of looking at something, and I'm sure you would have this in your tradition too, we have what's called the six sense consciousnesses, right? So the first five of those are the sense perceptions. They're called in Sanskrit ayatana, the ayatana. So it would be the eye, ear, nose, taste, and touch, right? And it would include, each one of those has three contents. The sense organ itself is one. The object of the perception, so in other words, if if you're talking about the eye consciousness, it would be the eyeball itself and the mechanism of that. Me looking at you right now, you'd be the object of that sense field. And the third one is the consciousness that occurs between the object and the sensor. So that gives you at least 15 ayatanas to talk about. And then you would have mind consciousness, which is the sixth one, which sort of at least the way I study it, functions as kind of switchboard. It's sort of interpolating between those sense perceptions. Now, the important thing is that in Vajrayana Buddhism, those sense fields have a very important role. They're not looked at as a kind of troublesome situation at all. They're looked at as, in fact, the Buddha fields themselves are the sense perceptions. So what you're seeing is already sacred world. What you're hearing is already sacred. It's inherently so. And so we don't try to shut those down and go to some other spiritual domain. How do you see that connecting with so-called virtual reality? Well, that, this makes it very easy because where is the input coming from? That's all you really have to know. Now, right now, for example, you appear to be sitting in this room with me mm-hmm. on some level. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because two of my ayatanas are completely engaged with your location. One is my sight, I'm seeing you, Uh, visually, and the other is I'm hearing your voice. So, to a very considerable extent, we've achieved 40% virtual reality in this very conversation. Yeah. 40% virtual. I can't smell you, I can't taste you, I can't touch you. Probably lucky on two of those counts. And those are the (laughs) earthier ones, too. Yes, yes. Right, so that's where the whole earthiness comes into play, uh, the grounded quality. But if you were able to, as a lot of people are talking about, simply bypass my sense organ and the visual input came directly into my brain as my eye output goes directly into my brain then we'd be one step closer to what obviously traditionally is called virtual reality and there's no doubt in my mind that we were on the verge of that and what I could bet on and would bet on within five years from now that the access to the internet that you and I are sharing right now will be on board on a human being in some way, shape, or form. Either some kind of implant or a headset that you can put on. And the way I thought of it yesterday is it'd be like having the TV on in the background, which Mm. we almost always do now. You would just have the internet in the background. You could bring it into the foreground as you wanted to access whatever information, communication you wanted. Go back. Now, that's one step short of full-on virtual reality, but that's coming. 
Do you think so? Oh, man, I was just thinking, I, I feel like it's almost already here with my iPhone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you see the iPhone with the eye of the future, you see it already. It's already implied in it. Interesting. And, and you know, this brings up all sorts of questions about the ramifications of that development for the things we've been talking about, keeping it real, genuineness, the development of some of these qualities of the heart and things that Buddhism has traditionally been aiming at. What are the ramifications of this? I mean, one thing that comes to mind is we're no longer limited to where we geographically live in terms of our study and practice of these things. Like, are there other things that come to mind? Oh, it goes, I think it goes well beyond that. I think one of the implications is a diorama opening up. You know, there's a multi-dimensionality to communication, three or even four dimensions. To like you're talking to people remote in time and space, and you're talking to more than one at a time. So it would be closer to Vipassana than Shamatha, if you look at it in Buddhist terms. Hmm. Anybody who's practicing Vipassana is not doing one thing at a time already. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tuning you're breathing, into a lot of you noticed a thought, you noticed an itch on your leg, um, you notice somebody sneezing across the room, you have a sense of the space in the meditation hall, the space outside the meditation hall. So Vipassana to me is already a sense of um, panoramic awareness and obviously the practices go beyond that to definitely being aware of, let's say, different energetic aspects of what's going on. So I think this is just in keeping with who we are. And I don't think of it as a very big deal. You know, one thing that when I think of, as Ray Kurzweil calls it, full immersion virtual reality, when I think of that as a, as a prospect, I, I think of, you know, normally I go to retreat centers like Spirit Rock or Insight Meditation Society, and I go and there's this amazing aesthetic and there's this amazing feel of community, but it takes so much time and energy to, to get there. And for a lot of people, that's not a possibility. It's just imagining how much easier it would be for practice communities to come together for instance there's a community in second life right now it's a little virtual zendo and uh, yeah it's really fascinating to go in there and you have your little avatar it's much different than being you know really somewhere but there's something in it the boundaries just feel like they've dropped away in some sense well now here's the thing is that i would say that if you carry this through if you read that article that i wrote in the huffington post about this the total irony of the situation was that as I was reading that Kurzweil book on the singularity, I was on a bus with my wife Cindy and, and about 20 other Dharma students wending our way down those roads, those famous roads in India that like really don't deserve the name, that were washed out by a monsoon that's been extended for about a month, mostly due to global warming, we think. And, and you know, really at any moment, we were at risk of plummeting down the face that you could see buses, you know, down the <laughs> <laughs> so, in that context, A, I'm reading Kurzweil's book on the singularity, and then we're stopping in on these uh, Sikkimese and Bhutanese monasteries, which are, if anybody's familiar with Tibetan Buddhist artwork, it's more than artwork. It is a form of virtual reality already. Mm-hmm. They're representing reality in a particular way with the images that they use. Mm-hmm. and. As you move in, it's not just a dualistic relationship between you and seeing a nice painting or something like that. They're conjuring up all kinds of aspects of one's own nature, one's own mind, and creating an atmosphere in which those are amplified. They're like amplifiers. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think there'd be a a kind of 3D virtual equivalent of those type of things? 
Well, I've thought about this quite a lot, and I've started talking about it to some people because when you do certain types of Fajiana practice, and probably in other schools too and other traditions, there's a sense of visualizing a particular uh, diorama. I'm going to use Western words. You know, It's a three-dimensional scape in which the object of the visualization is clearly seen to be transparent or energetic rather than hardcore form. But it has tremendous detail to it. And it's clearly, in its most literal aspect, otherworldly. Even though it, in its metaphoric aspect, it reflects very much kind of the energies and content of our experience right here in this human body. What I ended up saying is it's already, from a Buddhist point of view, this is already virtual reality that we have. Yes, yes. <laughs> and what's so fascinating to me, like when I've, I've read Ray Kurzweil's work, for instance, is that what we seem to be approaching with our own technology is being able to first replicate this virtual reality and then to actually make it even more virtual in a sense that once we're able to kind of move things around, it, it's a lot easier to create a virtual house, for instance, than it is to create a real house <laughs> because now we're dealing with bits as opposed to actual sure. physical stuff. Well, and that's why mind is the best place to start when you're planning something, right? If you rush in to build your house without using your mind first to visualize it and kind of think it through, you've wasted a very valuable resource there. For example, you and I were going to talk today, so we both thought about it a little bit. You sent me some questions to contemplate. Our mind is always leading it in that way. And then things become manifest from there. When they become manifest, it seems there's this element that will be maybe harder to reproduce in a virtual environment of consequences having a particular tangibleness to them. I could lose my mindfulness and trip over the doorstep here on the way out, and it's going to make it very, very tangible to me that I wasn't paying attention. Yeah, totally. So the earth element is something like, for example, my teacher really emphasized it strongly, the earth element. He said in Shambhala, people should be able to open their window and smell shit. I mean, in the form of cow manure outside. You shouldn't be so dainty that you can't smell manure and understand that that's what you need to grow food and things like that. So... The earth element in virtual reality is probably weak. Mm, that's interesting. Sometimes I've wondered with the whole Buddhist metaphysics if what we're heading to is something akin to a demigod type of situation or you know, the way that those things are conceived and that if something's not pleasurable, how quick can we change it in a virtual right. setting? Yeah, we're definitely creating the possibility of sort of God realm, the um, Devaloka and the, and the Suraloka, the God and the jealous God realms. Because if you get heavily, heavily into the pure mind realm without that grounded experience, you cut yourself off from the possibility of experiencing certain kinds of joy, certain kinds of suffering, and certain kinds of wisdom. No doubt about it. I agree with you. Hmm. That's cool. Thank you for sharing. That's a topic that is very fascinating, but it's not something that's talked about so much in Buddhist mm. circles yet. So it's cool to have that conversation with you. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, 
and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.